Zane Lowe, Apple Music. Hey, what's up? I'm Zane Lowe. Welcome back to the interview series. Our guests this week are one of those artists that if you're a music fan, you can trace back to those really essential moments in your life when you were developing your own identity and their music really helped. Well, music duo Tears for Fears are that for me. They came around at a time when uh, all sorts of stuff was going on and life felt kind of out of control and I was trying to kind of find my voice and who I was and here's an album called The Hurting that spoke to all of that and then they followed that up with songs for The Big Chair which was this huge, big, massive, worldwide number one album that did not stray away or shy away from the big subject matter. In fact, it took those learnings from The Hurting and turned them into what I would consider, at least through music, one of the blueprint projects discussing mental health awareness and the desire for growth. That's what Tears for Fears are. Big subjects, big songs. So I was thrilled to know they were coming back with their first original album as a duo in 17 years. There have been other songs and shows and tours and greatest hits, but they've never found themselves in a place where they've completed a body of work and they themselves have had to go through a lot of growth, Roland in particular, as this conversation will explain in order to get to that place. So You're going to hear a real fan in this conversation. That's me trying to navigate their way through a conversation with two really amazing, very smart, brilliant artists. Tears for Fears are this week's guests on the interview series. This is something if you're a Tears for Fears fan that you should be well versed in, which is the idea of a song starting somewhere and ultimately ending somewhere altogether very different. And it's the sense of adventurous arrangement and deep, honest emotion and tackling subject matter, which has now become hopefully much part of a larger conversation that you've been talking about for a very, very long time, which, you know, really brought me into your circle as a fan of your music. And I've been there ever since. Wonderful. So, Tears for Fears, it's really wonderful to be able to welcome you to Apple Music. And thank you for thank you. saying for hi on us. this album. Really appreciate it. Yeah, so welcome back. I mean, God, I can imagine there's a few questions you're absolutely sick and tired of, of being asked in the last no, couple of months. No, we are. Our lives are open books. Well, it's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for bringing your truth. Starting the, you know, with no small thing, you know, this, this beautiful, wonderful, kind of simple, acoustic, almost kind of folk type beginning that ultimately leads somewhere else. It feels like a journey, and I, and I wonder whether or not you hear in it the kind of overall nucleus of the album, whether it really represents the album in some ways. Yeah, I think so. We spent a lot of time doing all these writing sessions over a bunch of years with a lot of what were, you know, what are considered more modern songwriters, and it didn't really work out for us because we felt it was slightly dishonest. We were left with a lot of things that seemed like attempts at making a modern hit single, and and I don't think that's what we do. We're 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 really an album band, and every single of ours that's done well has come from an album. We've made that album first. So with the hurting, we made the hurting before Mad World was released. We made songs from the big chair before everybody was released and before Shout was released. So eventually we sat down, just the two of us, with two acoustic guitars and tried to forge a path forward. And A, it felt more honest, and B, the, the material at the end of it was far better, uh, because probably because it was more honest. And uh, this song is definitely a journey, and albums for us should be a journey, and I think it is encapsulated in this one song. You've earned the right to do that by doing it before and being successful and chipping away at that really important chemistry that comes and goes of being in a sort of, you know, creative relationship. And I I think now people go to modern songwriters because of the pressure to achieve data and success points and all these kind of constructs. And 
it's not something I ever would have thought that Tears for Fears would have even considered because you're a band's band who's had band's band success. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we weren't averse to the idea because trying things that are new is not a bad thing. Sure. But it, it became obvious. I mean, not, I wouldn't say quickly because we did a whole bunch of writing sessions over a period of years, but it's not until you sit down at the end of it and listen to what you have yeah. that you realize. Is it you, us? Is it us? And, and it just didn't feel right. How do you know when it feels right, Roland? Oh, instinct for that question. No, I mean, I, I, we, we came up some, with some great tracks when we were working with these uh, younger songwriters. It's just we got to a point where we were listening to the whole thing and you, you talked about journeys earlier, and No Small Thing is a classic example of starting somewhere and going somewhere completely alien. It's beautiful. We found we were lacking, we weren't doing ourselves any justice. We were lacking heart and soul. And so we were left in a situation which was a joy. It was don't look for any up-tempo, catchy tracks. Don't, don't worry about it. Just be look, look for something that is going to move people. Uh, stuff that is going to move you, that is representative of what's been going on in your life. That is tears for fears. That is what the hurting was all about. That's what exactly. this, this idea of, of Big Chair was all about. To me, was this the beginning of the arts and the modern holistic revolution. It, it, I, I, I don't, don't, know. don't say that when you're drunk. <laughs> I had not hard enough saying it sober after two mm. coffees. No, but it, look, I don't want to sound overdramatic, but I think back on the themes of that record about letting go mm. of, of giving yourself over to the good and the bad and the, and the learnings you take from that. And then into like, you know, Woman in Chains, which yeah. was one of the biggest records you've ever done, which is practically a movie. It's beautiful. Yeah, I'm very, we're very proud of that one. Do you have moments now with distance where you hear that song differently than when you did when you're in the middle of making it and touring it? I don't know. It's a very strange one, Woman in Chains, because it's got a magic about it. Yeah. There's something uh, extremely uh, serene about that song, and which is quite strange because the subject matter, of course, is uh, domestic abuse. It's violence. So, exactly. So when you see the video, is. Um, a beautiful demonstration, a beautiful demonstration of domestic abuse. Yeah, if there is such a thing, so you know, for instance, you know, you know, my in the in the video, the woman is an exotic dancer, and the the guy's a boxer. It's a kind of cliched version of how life was for me in my childhood. When my mother was a, a stripper, and my and my dad basically used to rough her up uh, a lot. So you know, I mean, yeah, it is. Um, but it's a beautiful song. So free her at the end. It just kills me. <laughs> kills me I was listening to yeah. it again the other day and it had yeah. me in tears just driving the car and it's yeah. amazing that moment when you key change toward that exactly. those exact words yeah. uh, that's where music is at it's most powerful you know a trade of sorts a chance for you to cover some ground to help, help you heal yep. helps others heal at the same time pure magic wouldn't have it without these albums, you know? Uh, getting back to the tipping point right now, this brand new album, um, covering a lot of ground. One of the things I love about Tears for Fears, I feel like there isn't something that you can't at least attempt to try and make your own. You know, how did you end up with the songs that you ended up from? And, and what was the overarching experience if it wasn't in a room with a bunch of new songwriters? Was it just a focused writing session between the two of you? Like, how did it happen? Um, well, that was varied. I mean, we finished the, those writing sessions and like I said, we sat down to try and, and forge a path forward. And so what we initially did was go back over the songs we already had 
and the things that we had written and realized that there were some there that we definitely wanted to use, whether the recordings were right or not, and most of them weren't completely right, and we changed those to a certain degree to bring them up to date with the new material we were thinking of recording. So we had five songs, and, and the key then was to go and find the other, how, however many, I mean, it ended up being another five, that made the album a complete journey. So for us, I think choosing them, I mean, it really, it's not till the end of an album that you realize when you put it together that you have everything you need. When you're there and you, you hope you have everything. Well, you ha- exactly. You hope you have everything, but you don't know until you're done. Yeah. Because because you want to get to the end of an album, have that feeling of completion. Wow. Yeah, we did. You it. know, and done. And that's that's you've got two people to satisfy in that demand. And I think one of the things about any band pulling it away from this kind of micro-focus of tears for fears and the the challenge and triumph you've been through. Mm -hmm. Any collaborative or artistic experience or relationship is going to go through the disconnection, the dysfunction. It's part of it. How how challenging was it for the two of you to come together, not with anyone else around? I feel like equal voices were being heard and it wasn't as it had been in the past, according to some reports and interviews, more you in this case, or more you over here doing this thing, and a separation occurs. Well, we have worked in teams before, Kurt and I. I mean, obviously, we started off the two of us. Yeah, We worked in a team um, to make songs from the big chair. There were five very important people for that record, the engineer, producer Chris Hughes, Ian, Ian Stanley, keyboard player and co-writer. So that has, that has been successful, extremely successful. But there are, there are moments in our career and in our lives where we, we are best left just the two of us. Um, and that happened in Caesar Love. We had an awful ride where the record company was trying to get songs from the big chair number two. And so, I mean, we worked with Chris again, Chris Hughes, who did Big Chair and The Hurting, and then we sacked him once, and then we, we did some more work, and then he came back, and then we sacked him twice. Um, and, and then... But Rough. we, and of course, we, the record company at this point, they go, oh my God, the artists are taking over. The artists are producing the record. <laughs> the artists are choosing the songs. This is, this is horrendous. Yeah. But we did. Because it changes the psychology. That's what people don't think about. They're not, they're not so concerned about you making the right decision. They're concerned no. they don't have someone they can influence in between you. Exactly. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, because the, and in our case, that, that, that definitely was, more so because Chris Hughes, who was the producer we worked with, was best friends with Dave Bates, who was our A and R person. Yeah, it is. So we've got these two people that you know Dave would probably be trying to get Chris to make us do certain things, and so in the end we decided to do that ourselves. Boom. Yeah. That album. And then this time wow. we had, you know, we we did initially have a management and a record company. We were signed to Warner Brothers. And and they were the ones that really wanted us to make a more modern sounding record. And and we, as I said, we did go along with it and it wasn't a big problem for us initially. It's not like they we went there kicking and screaming. We were open to the idea to see if we did, would learn anything. But in the end, we really didn't. And by the end of all those sessions, we had bought those recordings from the record company. We had lost our management. So we... We're just left with the two of us. No Wonderful. record company. No record yeah, it was company. Great. Wonderful. <laughs> no. What a great morning to wake up that morning. It's like, oh. Yeah. No record company, yeah. no management. And we sat down and decided again, how, how do we get this, finish this album? And we ended up doing that sort of one writing session in my house in Los Angeles, beginning mm-hmm. of 2020. Mm-hmm. Roland went back to London, to England and the pandemic hit. So he couldn't come back for quite a while. So we were doing things sort of via email and eventually 
Ronan got back, I think, at the beginning of September or late August, somewhere around there in 2020. Mm. And so we went in the studio in September, and by Christmas we finished. Wow. That's how quickly, that's how quick it was when we were left to our own devices. There's a great interview back in maybe 85. The two of you were talking about um, the road that you traveled in the previous band. And how many hours you'd spend on the road just trying to find, build your audience one two gig weeks. at a time. Yeah. Two weeks. It was just two weeks in Germany. But it killed us. Oh my God, the way you talked about it would be three uh, years. No, that, that was two weeks and it killed us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never had before. I've lost all my sympathy no, now. Exactly. I mean, we were, we were what we call in England wusses, you know, and... We couldn't, we couldn't bear it. You we know, could, we, we were, couldn't hack it. We had two weeks. It was two yeah. weeks and two vapors. Two weeks. Well, I'm now, I'm replacing the violin I was going to present you at the end of this interview with the smallest violin that, you've, that anyone's ever seen in their life. I mean, that's funny though, but, but my point, I think the question still, is, still, is still relevant, which is that, um, you know, the idea of, of you, you know, coming together and, and, and being left alone and ultimately working on your craft was the point in the first place, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there was a, it was a very, very strange thing but um yeah once we were alone again it all started to happen and i i guess that's that is the secret of us working together that when we put our minds together when we're both on the same page then then that magic does happen okay the obvious question from a lifelong fan i get to ask it because i've been with you all the way along and i was crestfallen when you no longer were in the band Mm. Um, when there was a time when I felt like at your peak success. Happy days. Yeah, well, for me. The, <laughs> I mean, and it's funny because, again, I remember the, I remember the you know, it's people talk about it, you know, breakups and bands or whatever, and, and it's because we hold you so dear, right? Mm-hmm. It's because you give us this gift and we want it to carry on because it keeps, it, it, it fills the gaps in our lives, you know, it gives us this joy that we need and it helps us cry when we need to. And so when we lose that, it's like, it's a real mourning that goes on in it. Yeah. And so when that happened, I, I just... I couldn't understand how a band finishes making a record themselves, mm-hmm. which is what every band aspires to achieve is to be able to do that, yeah. have it be as successful as it was, and then decide that this is no longer tenable. And with the word acrimony thrown in there as well, which was, mm. you hate it, it's either, am- mm. it's either amicable or acrimonious horrible thing so I just I never got to the point of how that happened and now that you're both in front of me and seeming so united it's just yeah. fascinating to me why that would have happened well the way we explain it is um, it was it, natural I think you've seen the get back uh, video of course mm-hmm. uh, the, the documentary and yeah yeah you're seeing uh, four guys who were incredibly successful who had grown up together joined at the hip but there's something that happens psychologically I think when you get to around the age of 28 28 and a half 29 we call it the Saturn return in astrology. Mm-hmm. And so there, there was a natural kind of separation. Something had to shift. Something had to change. We'd done the 10 years together. And we were in bands from the age of 14. So that's, that was, uh, at that point in time, half our lives. And so that there, there is a natural thing. I mean, the acrimony, I mean, that's all a little bit, that's childish. But then it happened with the Beatles as well, exactly the same thing. Well, see, the Beatles thing is fascinating, though, because I take your point with Saturn's Return because I've been through <laughs> oh, <good>. it. <laughs> no. I've, twice. We've done twice. Yeah, two I think rings. I've done, I think I might have done twice. No, now you well. haven't. No, must be close. I must be close. <laughs> I'm not too far away. But I definitely, I, I remember very clearly what I was going through at the time that it hit me and what I was listening to. I found my album, I found my band, thank God. And that that, that really helped me. That tall record saved my life. But, um, but you know, I, I, I think about that that Beatles experience and what was going on there as well. See, my theory is that McCartney was just on this creative tear, 
Yeah, incredible. Like creative tear. And he was he was writing these songs that have become like these timeless classics and everyone else is reading the sports pages in the Daily Telegraph. Exactly. And it's almost like, and you got John who's in love. He's like, I'm too busy being in love. Yeah. And George is like, I want to be John. And Paul's like, I want John. And Ringo's stoned. And so between the four of them, just trying to figure us out of space. So this, it was just this whole creative thing. And did it get to the point where you were going in different directions creatively and it wasn't just the natural astrological separation? <laughs> I mean, that's hard. Yeah. It's hard to tell. I don't think we ever found out creatively what it meant. I mean, for me, it was more personal than creative. And I felt that it was time for us, or certainly for me, to try and find out who I was as an individual. See, this is the problem when you're in a band, you know, in our case, a duo, but, you know, any band, you are that guy. Yep. You're that guy from Tears for Fears, you know, and then, and when you've been doing it just, the, I mean, for us, just the two of us for, for the amount of time we had since we were 14, you, you're kind of, you are connected at the hip and you really, at that age, need to go out and find who you are. And I went through some personal things at the time. I went through a divorce mm -hmm. in my personal life. I had met my now wife. We've been together for 34 years now um, in New York. And I was discovering New York and how much I loved New York. So you were John. Yeah, basically, I guess. I mean, I, and, but. I was I, Ringo. And the, no, you weren't. You were, judging, no disrespect, but judging from the record you went on to make, which I still think is fucking fantastic, Breaking On Down is one of my favorite songs you've ever yeah, done. You were, you were a bit Paul. A little bit Paul. But I, yeah, so I. I I'll take Paul. I don't mind. <laughs> I think that the same, and actually there is a, a, a similarity to the extent, for, I think the same reason that John Lennon loved New York was no one bothers you. Yeah. No one ever stops you. Get you get the anonymity the that you crave. Yeah. No one stops you on the street. You're not constantly reminded of who you are. Yeah. And in a, you know, in a city like Bath, where I was born and grew up, everyone knows everything you're doing because it's a, it's a that small That would have happened if you were running the chip shop. Yeah. You know, um, so it's, it's peculiar. And then New York, I managed to just kind of disappear and just grow up a bit. Now you, know? you can go on Twitter and everyone knows exactly what you're doing. This is yeah. very true. Yeah, yeah, you don't yeah. actually need to live I in don't. Bath. No, you don't. And you worked that very well, by the way. Some wonderful yeah. quarantine content over the course of us. We appreciate it very much. You, on the other hand, my God, talk about the snow leopard. I mean, every now and then there'll be a sighting. Someone will be like, I saw him up on, you know, Mulholland somewhere walking. And I'll be like... Up in the Highlands, even. Yeah, the perhaps. Highlands of Scotland. Yeah. With my, with my camera and my kilt. There is some seriousness to, to that line of conversation, though, Roland. You have been someone who has become incredibly successful, and yet I've seen you be charming and, and forthcoming, but, I, but I've always felt that you've really prized your anonymity. Rare occasions where I've been charming. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't really know. I mean, I've never really thought about it. I kind of like. I like making records. You know, I like being creative. You know, I love going on tour. I love performing live. I don't really need. I mean, we. I don't think either of us really needed the fame. I mean, it was kind of like when you're a kid. I mean, I remember um, my dad used to take uh, professional photographs, and I had like a picture of me when I was a kid with the Aladdin scene flash across my. Face. And I always, I was big into Top of the Pops, huge. I mean, I was addicted to it. I, I always had this dream of being, being a pop star. But the, the thing with dreams is, you know, once you've realized them and you kind of go, okay, well, I haven't really changed. It hasn't changed me. I'm still the same guy. Yeah. So, I mean, at that, at that point in time, I mean, I remember all the hysteria in the 80s and it's like, Hysteria is, it's manufactured and it comes from distance and space. You know, you, I am the sacred object, you must not touch me, okay? So if you kind of go, well, I, actually, you know what? I'm not the sacred object and I'm, you can touch me and you can talk to me. And once you do that, you, you start to relate to fans on the same level. Yeah. 
then then all the hysteria goes away, and and then there's a, a hugely important, a far more important connection to people than this kind of fake stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't really care, you know. Well, and you couldn't really afford to care about being pop stars because you were the weirdest successful <laughs> band. Yeah. Yes. And I mean, yeah. there was a decade of them. I feel like you, Depeche Mode. Yeah, lovely band. But it was a weird decade. And I think back now to how music translated and having number one album selling millions of copies and being courted left, right and center. And you were not making records that were playing the game. No, I don't think so. I mean, we made records that we liked. So that was the key you know, for so, us. Kurt, what happens when you make the hurting, which you like, which is a strange and absolutely anxiety-inducing port, you know, travel yeah. through someone's pain, goes on to break you as a band? It's, it was strange because we never actually thought, I mean, going back there, we never thought Mad World was really going to be a hit. We, yeah. we thought it would give us some credibility. I mean, why would anyone walk in a record store and look at that cover and go, that's for me on a Sunday? <laughs> <laughs> well, in England, they would. Right, you know, yeah, that's, that's true. That's, that's, that's true. The, that is the difference. I mean, if you look at, you know, we've never had a number one single in England, but Mad World was number three at Christmas time. Gary Jules. Gary, Gary Jules, Jules did, yeah. yes, yes, yes. At Christmas time. Gary, yeah. Gary Jules also at Christmas time. Yeah. So this is, you know, this is the English psyche for you. Mad World speaks to them. <laughs> that's true. At, uh, uh, over the holidays, which is, supposed to be a time of celebration so yeah we never really thought about it i mean and i think that also for us you know when we became big and you know with songs of the big chair even bigger we realized you can't equate fame with happiness for one thing yeah it was the most stressful time of i think you know both our lives at, at that point um, it wasn't exactly enjoyable. And also that was kind of alien. People screaming at you that don't know you was just peculiar. No way you got me. into it. Yeah. It was, it was kind of like, well, you don't know me. How, how could you? Well, the music said that. It's not like, you know, you could listen to a song like Mad World or Pale Shelter and be like, this guy wants to be, you know, he's descending from the heavens on a huge platform and dry ice. I mean, it's like, it's very insular, very, mm -hmm. it's, yeah. it's, I mean, it's the right side of self-absorbed, which is what we want from certain albums because it encourages us to be self-aware and go deeper as well. If there's one thing you can describe us as, it's self-absorbed, <laughs> to be honest, to be, to be brutally honest. Yeah, with you, but, but you know what, you get the balance right and it's a, it allows us to absorb those things ourselves. Tears for Fears, it's such a joy to have you in the studio. I'm loving every second of this. When you got to Big Chair, you know, you, I, I spoke about this before. Some of those um, instincts to really dive deep into your own personal life and to share those that pain, I guess in a weird way to put it through a modern lens, you'd done the therapy and then you came out with some of the learnings. And I feel like that album had quite a lot of learnings in it. It felt like it was sort of like, let us, let us try and share some of these feelings and start to like have a different kind of conversation. Is that a fair assessment of that record, having lived with it my whole it life? Is, it is. I mean, The Hurting, you know, it was kind of raw and it was, you know, very much um, an expression of the difficulties of adolescence. You yeah. know, I mean, times a hundred coming out of childhood, not yet being uh, an individual, not yet being an adult. And hurting was beautiful, but it was also, you know, we were inspired and obsessed with the Californian psychologist Arthur Yanov, the primal scream. And so, you know, the thing that separated us was from, from the pack was this kind of evangelical belief in primal theory that it was going to change the world. And so, you know, we, the old um, cliched saying we have is we wanted to get rich get famous and get therapy. So, and then what, but if you look at the progression of our work, especially through, through the eighties, you started to see the adult emerge. And so the adult emerged and was concerned about the world 
not just the inner world, but the state of play with the Cold War at the time with, with Big Chair. And if you carry on that journey, so we, we started making songs, you know, like instead of Shout, Shout, Let It All Out being about Primal Scream, it was about protest. Yeah. So we were moving into this political arena. Then the ego, as it does, was getting, was forming. The strong ego, the positive ego, the thing that you need to protect you in life. And that, the, the sun on the Seeds of Love cover, the Seeds of Love um, video, is the sort of symbol of that, um, dare I say, astrological ego. It makes total sense. And I listen back to Big Chair and I, what really strikes me again, getting back to the weirdness of it, is just how some of the arrangements and the musicality of that album connected on such a mass level. Shout's mm. a weird song in itself, but it's a perfect pop song. Yeah. You know, talking to my wife about it the other day, I was like, this is just so flawless. But then you listen to like Head Over Heels. Not just that piano riff, which mm-hmm. became so iconic overnight. I remember being a rap fan and hearing DJ Cash Money loop that, and wow. that was the start of his DJ set back in the 80s, and it was like it was embraced. But just the sound, this is where I... Warning, this is super granular, nerdy, super fan shit. But just the sound of the piano, mm-hmm. the way you made it sound, and not just a normal piano, but you gave it this kind of, almost like it had been recorded in another room. It's a really strange sensation. It, it, it was recorded in another room. How in a you, big room. How did you, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> I'm so glad that I've finally gotten to Roland's dry sense of humor within... 28 minutes but no I mean just the, the feel of, this, of, the, of the piano you know yeah. and, and it, it became something that was iconic within your, within your sound and within your catalogue and, and looking back on that now can you just tell us a story about making Head Over Heels because it's really one of those moments God well that's, that was, Head Over Heels was tough because we were making sort of, um, sort of quite advanced electronic music this, this pop song came along and it was like, well, what do we do with it? Yeah. We haven't got a clue. So we were struggling. We had the bass part, which sounded great. Uh, we were kind of thinking, take me to the river. So that's because it's the same beat. Yeah. But that is such an organic record. We didn't get anywhere near it. And it was really, I think it was Chris Hughes, who, um, the producer, who identified the strengths of the song. And, he just, and, it, and we just did it very linear, very 80s. And, you know, it's one of those songs which we didn't really particularly like, but when we play it live, yeah. oh. when, we, when we play it live, we, we get to the end of the set. It doesn't matter what song you play before it, yeah. how big that song is. When that intro kicks in, yeah. the audience goes crazy. It is it's so fantastic. iconic. That piano is so iconic. Where were you when that was written and how did that little piano riff? It deserves some attention. Didn't it start on tour? I it may have started on tour, maybe a 1983 Where yeah. You Are tour. But yeah, I mean, it's, um, God, that, we, we just, yeah, we just didn't like it. We were trying to turn it into some kind of thing from J- by Japan or yeah. Tin Drum. And it was well, that's right. We pieces. were uh, yeah, listening crazy. to Tin Drum. Well, I wondered about that push and pull of being a band that really came from an avant-garde space on your debut album, all of a sudden had an audience and this instinct to make big pop songs and where the push and the pull internally is there. Well, I mean, I think with, especially with Head Over Hills, strangely, and, and we didn't, we weren't big fans of the song to start with because, I don't know, it seemed too simplistic to us. And and also, I think the lyrical content, because it really is just a simple love song. Yeah. I mean, that's what it is. And and in general, that's not what we gravitate towards, um, as you could probably guess. But again, when you when you get into a studio here's the joy of making albums instead of again instead of just trying to write tracks or singles is 
you know, you put you start listening to all the songs together and then Head Over Hills makes a bit more sense. Mm. It's yeah. that time of just openness because there's not a ton. I mean, until the end, there's not a ton on that track. Yeah, but the end is the is the that's the big reveal. That's the big Tears for Fears moment, right? Hey, Jude, go on. How do you hear that? Well, the la well, la 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 la. Yeah. Right, right. So the, the la 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 la. And all that kind of it was, stuff. Yeah. It was a straight rip off. But there's you know. so many layers going on in there, and and the fact this is one of the things that you do so brilliantly is that somehow I feel like I'm lost in the swirl of what you've made, and then but you know. It's poetry. Where you, you're lost in the swirl of what we made. That's, <laughs> that's right the back new down. Album, the new right back title. down. That's a line of lyric. That's the one I've been looking for. Something. Okay, go on. You can have that for free. Thank you. Thank Every you. other one. You heard it, everyone. Quarter point a word. But um, not that it means anything these days. But you know where we are at all times. I just don't know where I am. And so that moment when you get to that point where the flange kicks in yeah. and mm. time flies, literally... Yeah. And it's like, you. I don't know how you get to this place again and nerd out, how you somehow bring it back to focus. Because before that, you don't only have, the reason I didn't get the, the Hey Jude reference is because that's probably the fourth thing I'm listening to in the yeah. last yeah. minute of that song. True. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there is a lot on the end of that song. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is just feel. You know, you go by how you feel a track should end and and also in your mind what it's going into. I mean, we kind of knew it was going into Broken, which is this other yeah. song. So, you know, it, it's uh, the funny how Time Flies sets up that manic kind of track that comes immediately Well, is after. that your way of sort of getting the last word in on Head Over Heels by putting Broken on the end of it and not just letting it sit in its pop song outfit? Yeah, we just, yeah. We just wanted to screw it up. You wanted to break it a bit, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, that's how we play it live. Yeah, most of the time. Yeah, um, because it's, you thought it was over, but no, we're just going to do something a little abstract to finish it off. <laughs> and and broken is very abstract. Tears for fears are with us. The tipping point. This is a conversation you know that's covering a lot of ground in a limited amount of time, but one I've waited for my whole life. To be able to be having it now with new music is very important. We could have touched base a few years ago when you were you were sort of doing a, a, a very sort of a one-time only victory lap. You had the greatest hits out. And yeah. You did the Ivers and it was all very cool. And everyone was like, man, we love you. We've always loved you. And you should know that we love you. But, you know, it wouldn't have been enough, would it? I mean, you had to make a new record. Had to, yeah. I mean, there's something, some voice um, in the back of my head was saying, Roland, uh, this is very important. Uh, and so it was, it was a, a kind of, daemon or a demon, whatever you want to call it, that mm. was kind of driving the whole thing. But it's got to come from somewhere inside. And a lot of times people get that urge because they're feeling creative or they're feeling unsatisfied creatively or they just need to say something. But yeah, I think I got to a point in my life where, you know, kind of my life had spiraled out of control. And I kind of like, um, when that kind of happens and when you kind of have, have to surrender, as they say, um, then you're kind of, you're, your whole mind and soul and heart opens up to the the ether to the external influences again probably f you know for me for the first time since i was a lot younger i was much much more open when i was you know writing the hurting and stuff like that and uh, so it was absolutely necessary if you're mm, lucky's the wrong word it's a but uh what curse I'm it's a curse well Yes. The gift and the curse are never far away from each other. And I think that you either stay you either stay cursed <laughs> or you or you find a way for it yeah. for it to gift you something. Exactly. And I yeah. think, you know, we've seen a lot of people, I've seen people in my life, I know some people in my life now who are lost in the curse. You know, I I, I wonder sort of 
if there is an observation from your experience as an artist that people admire and as someone who expresses himself through art, how you found a way to gift yourself this album and whatever learnings you took from what was ultimately a very difficult time in your life. Well, you just, you've got, you know, hopefully you get to a better place. You know, once you've done all the, you know, more therapy, uh, more rehab, you know, that kind of thing. And for me, it was uh, also the love of a good woman, you know, to find myself back in a, in a, in a, in a, a great relationship. Yeah. And re- reconnecting with the heart, if, if that, which it sounds a, it sounds a little bit no. hippie and spiritual. No. But reconnecting to the heart is, and is an extremely important thing to do, or else you're just not living. Yeah. And once I, I found, once I did that, um, there was, you know, again, I found myself realizing how important Kurt is in my life, and it just made the whole thing a joy. You'd obviously stayed in touch, but that. Reconnecting with Roland at that moment, where it's a different Roland, the same Roland, but a different Roland, been through things and come out with, to his point, different learnings, different mm. sense of self-awareness, right? Self-awareness, ultimately, if you do it right, creates greater awareness of others because you get to chip away at the things that are alienating you from other people. Very good way of putting it, sir. Very good. Like tone for me has always been a really crazy thing. Like the way I talk doesn't often reflect what I'm saying. Exactly. And so therapy's been very good. It's it's unfortunate. (laughs) It's uh, it's clearly a New Zealand thing. Elocution lessons, my dear boy. Elocution lessons. Oh my God. Fucking 80s guys, look at you. Never too far away from a good old fucking pop at the Kiwis over here in the corner. Fucking 80s British bands, holy shit. But it's it's true. And I wonder kind of how how that was for you, Kurt reconnecting with Roland at a time when he was open. Well, you don't know that until you get back together. And then once you do and you realize, okay, this is this is feeling good now. Um, you know, we left, with we'd done all these writing sessions and the tour in 2019, yeah, mm-hmm. 2019 wasn't great. And Roland wasn't in a good place at yeah. all. And, yeah. um, and at the end of it, I we both, I think, needed just to step away from it. And, um, and, and move away. And I, I wasn't liking the music we had done up to that point um, on the various writing sessions. And, yeah. and Roland went away and clearly had, in the interim period, listened to that and come to the same conclusion. And by the beginning of 2020, it seemed Roland was in a better place and he just um, said, you know, let's go have lunch. So he went and had lunch and it seemed back to kind of normal. Um, it was I the mean, new normal. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to describe. It's because it's a feeling, you know, you know when you're relating and when you're not because there's a tension there when you're not. I always get quite emotional and things like that. Like when I spend time with someone who I know that there's an unspoken kind of chemistry that's that's resurrected that I've been missing, I get like my eyes well up. And yeah, me it, too. It's a, strange, <laughs> it's a strange thing, you know. Like I don't feel like I want to cry, but all of a sudden I feel myself touching my eyes and drying things. and well, like I'm. Trying I, to... That's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's healthy. When you listen to this album, can you? We spoke about this before. You said mm. you still like it. Yeah, I, I, I love it. And, you know, I mean, I, I spend, uh, you know, a bunch of time have done um, hiking my dog and, and my wife recently. You broke. hike hike your wife? Hike my wife. No, I hike my dog and my... Let me finish the sentence. I started, you should. You should. I started, so I'll finish. And my wife recently broke her ankle, which was oh, where no. I was Oh, no. Now it's one of those moments where we went for the cheap lol. There was a comma after the dog. See, you got to be yeah. careful with that, Roland, because yeah. the cheap lol, you never know where it's going. 
um, so I have been hiking my dog solo yes. for a bit. Yeah. So I've been listening to music. Uh, and and I was listening to this album, and I, and I listened to it a whole bunch of times, and I still love it. it it's just, it has this fantastic journey, and there were, and it, it's one of those um, records which I find highly gratifying, that, that your favorite track changes a yeah. bunch of times. Yeah. Songs that I didn't, you know, there's like you know, one particular song that I wasn't a huge fan of. Say. Which one? Um, End of Night, it's called, wasn't where it comes on the album, I love it now, mm. you know, because it's part of the journey now and where it comes, it's needed. It's kind of like the head over heels to yeah. me of that head over heels thing, which yeah. we weren't particularly fans because it wasn't that deep. And it really is a lyrical thing more than anything else. And, and end of night is the same kind of thing. But where, where it comes, it's much needed. Song nine. Song number nine. Albums, yeah. man. Always yeah. a little rough on song number nine. You yeah, exactly. gotta be, it takes a little time. Well, yeah, I think it was political um, putting the song there, you know. I love, a track. I love a good track listing. I mean, it's one of the things I lament a little bit these days is that you try and have that conversation with our children. We have two teenagers and they're just like, I mean, thankfully we've raised them in an album environment where they do understand the, the, the quality of a good body of work. Mm-hmm. But I think that, um, you know, all this talk about the album and lamenting the, con- the concept of an album, the thing that goes by the wayside is the complete thought. Yeah, And the idea of actually being able to immerse yourself into something that lasts 45 minutes or an hour and have something that's, that's as close to spiritual without having to climb a mountain as you can get, I think. Uh, it, this album does sound very good up a mountain. <laughs> so <laughs> That might be too much spirituality. I mean, my well, head might explode. You can never have too much spirituality. <laughs> Says the man who's let the hair grow gray. You look yeah. f***ing fantastic, by the way. Thank you. Well, you can call me Gandalf. <laughs> yeah, no, way more handsome than that. But it must have been nice to, to also realize, and I, this is a genuine question, because I feel like you both seem incredibly comfortable within your legacy now, having made a new album that actually adds value to the legacy mm-hmm. as opposed to constantly dancing around it. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, not wishing to blow our own trumpet. God, but, I've done uh, enough of it. Help me out. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think that's an absolute point. I mean, we, we a great point. We, we didn't have to make an album. You know, I mean, in many ways, Everybody Loves a Happy Ending is a good gag to go out to on. To go out on, yes, it you is. You know, so it's... Yeah. And, and we had this sort of, this thing from the management you know, guys, you're a heritage act. Come on, you can. You don't have to make what another. What motivates that to... thinking? Do you think? Because well, what's it? What, laziness, laziness. Laziness. They don't want. They don't, laziness, don't yeah. have to do the additional work. They don't in order want to, to do the work. So, right, right. yeah. Uh, but and it's like, and again, reconnecting to your heart, and you find yourself doing the same things, needing to do them, needing to go deep down, down into the cave, down into the dungeon, yeah. fight the dragon, get the gold come out, bring the gold to the surface. Yeah. So you, you get the gold, you don't get the gold. Canal Gandalf over here going through one of last Sunday's <laughs> good day in the office. One album to rule them all. So let's get into the future and the learning and the taking away from this. Now that you've been able to sack off the label, sack off the management, focus on what makes you happy, mm. come through the other side of that. What's the fundamental learning here? Like what makes it work for you? Two of us. Yeah. I think the two of us and not listening to anyone else initially. I think that, you know, because between the two of us, we can find out if we're on the same page. Yeah. yeah. Right. The direct communication. Yeah. So you can find out if you're on the same page or not, as opposed to a third party or fourth, you know, be it management, record company, whomever, who suggests you do something. It sounds like that got in the way. It did. It, yeah. it did well, it did. They, they placed themselves in between you. Right. So, so they want to be the intermediary because that's how they control the situation. Psychology of it all. Yeah. You know, so once we work out 
you know, that we're in a place where we're on the same page, then it, it is actually very easy. So the question is like, putting aside the concept of, and maybe you will, but on this album, writing with modern writers, and that's a very personal thing. You two yeah. are writers. Mm-hmm. It's got to come from in here, right? Yeah. But sonically, and the idea of moving in different spaces and doing different things, you're perfectly positioned because, and you've, you've, you've acknowledged this before, so I'll acknowledge it again, you know, you are 100% a contemporary touchstone for some of the most really innovative modern artists. Like, Abel doesn't fuck around. No. You know, he's one of the greats. And and I've spoken to him about you. We, we, we've had the Tears for Fears conversation. So I wonder whether or not that kind of opens up the, the scope of what's possible now that you've been able to reunite and do what you always did best, come from inside out. What out feels like to you going forward? What's What's interesting about the the able thing, and you know, is that a question? I don't even know if that was a question. I felt no, like a question. But what's you're, interesting? You're just you're just a poet. It's yeah. right. remarkable. It was all right. Actually, yeah, it's incredible. It's all right. I mean, the interesting thing about the able thing, and and you know, going on from there, Kanye or Drake, whomever may sample our stuff. Um, Do you see what he just did? Yeah, check it out. I'm so sorry, Who but there's ever? no fucking way I'm letting you get away with that. That was like, whether it's the Able thing or it's the Kanye or the Drake well, thing, who was up? That was fucking epic. God damn, you just don't know who the shit is going to be. You think it's going to mm. be Roland, he's going to come and be all fucking shitter. It's not. Kurt was always the shitter. I'm not. I'm, I, I hate to brag, but... Carry on. <laughs> sorry, just those names, as no, you were. Just throwing them out there. That's all yeah, I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. The, what happened there was, and, and the problem you know, was that obviously Abel was a big fan, say. So so then management, you know, and record company, you need to work with these people. Yeah. Right? But they, they... 10x on what you've already got, everybody, simply by getting in the room with him. I get it. It's so gross. <laughs> which, is, which is ridiculous because the reason, you know, they've used our music is because of us, because we did the music. It's not, you know, the, I don't think working with them makes things any better I don't well, unless it's organic unless you meet and you realize well yeah there's something that can be done naturally maybe but you know I, I think that's difficult I mean I think it's difficult enough with two people who are strong willed and have big enough egos like the two of us do <laughs> adding a third with yeah, that yeah, yeah. that kind of would be difficult I think but you know the reason we've been sampled or been used and been covered by by various people it's because they appreciate what we do. So why don't we stick to what we do and keep doing that? And we're waiting. I mean, you know, if the 2019 tour for its varying issues and, and challenges that you had to, to, to push past gave you anything, it was a reminder that there's a lot of people who really want to see you play live because oh, yeah. at the core of it, it's, go and look at the shit online, by the way. What a band. I mean, seriously, the way you reproduce these complex songs and bring them to life is flawless, but not to the point of like sterility. Yeah, no. you're not. It's not claustrophobic. You're not strangling them. No, it's just really good. <laughs> well, yeah. the band. You know, we we've been lucky enough over the years to discover a band we're really comfortable with. Players that are great. Um, they've been with us for a whole bunch of years now, so it becomes a tight knit unit. And and the live work. I mean, not only is the playing great because they're great players, mm. and the fact that they're great players makes us better because we have to keep up with them. So that's great. But they're also the easiest people. They're, they're, they're adults. And um, 
you know, touring with them is a pleasure because they're just... Focused on the right things. Well, they're focused on the music yeah. and they're easygoing, just genuinely nice people who happen to be very talented. Do you have a wonderful time on stage despite the fact that it was made in a different time when you hear Break It Down Again? Because I think that's that song is so fucking great. Well, great the, the, the audience song. don't know where it comes but from. But do Kurt, you know? do you... I enjoy playing it. Yeah. yeah. It's fun to play. Yeah. I mean, I have, I have no issue with that. It's a good song. It's a great live. song. It's a great song live. Well, it's another it, one. That, and yeah, it fits it's in. Crowd favorite. Well, it's because you love an intro, right? Yeah. I mean, that one well, sounds like intro. Top Gun. That was the it idea. It... <laughs> Request for flyby denied, Maverick. You, you Muppets are going to Top Gun. <laughs> but it ends like this. God damn, I've loved every second of this. I hope we get to do it again. I, I have a feeling we will. I don't think you're going anywhere. Well. Here we go. Only time will tell. <laughs> Tears for Fears, brand new album, The Tipping Point, is streaming right now. Listen to it on Apple Music. Thanks very much for checking out another conversation right here on the interview series. Add a rating or a comment. I check them out, and I'll be back next week. Take care.